You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When we're falling in love, we rarely consider food preferences as central to long-term happiness. But today we meet three couples for whom cooking and eating are in fact creating marital problems. There's Rebecca and Saj, she's a vegan and he's a meat eater. Cheryl and Darmesh, she likes fried chicken but he prefers curries. Krista and Toby, he eats at the dinner table and she likes to eat in bed. And he doesn't like that because obviously it gets scraps and stuff in the bed. I am definitely not a fan of that, yeah, because <laughs> breadcrumbs will get in the bed and then you end up sleeping later and finding out. a these... box. Sure, but some will always spill. <laughs> also coming up, we share a recipe for molasses spice cookies, which was inspired by a listener question. Later on, Dan Pashman rails against avocado toast. But first, it's my interview with Nikki Nakayama and Carol Ida Nakayama, chefs at LA's Ennaka. Nikki and Carol, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. We're talking about Kaiseki cuisine. So before we get to your restaurant uh, and some of the details, could someone, one of you, just define it as best you can? What is Kaiseki cooking? Sure. Kaiseki is the most formal way of dining in Japanese cuisine. It really focuses and highlights what's in season. And the most important thing is the sequence of how the food is served. There's a, a quote about this cooking, and it says, Ingredients with narrow, days-long windows of shun, S-H-U-N, like bamboo shoots in spring or plum blossoms in winter, should be included not only to bring diners joy, but to prompt a melancholy reflection on the relentlessness of time and the inevitability of death. So uh, so could so one of you please give me a little bit more information about how that works into Kaiseki. Sure. So with Kaiseki, I think the whole uh, concept and philosophical idea about it is it's a celebration of nature and life. And the idea of shun knowing that certain things only have a very limited time and season is very reflective of how everything is consistently changing. So with something like a bamboo shoot, the window is so short and sometimes Within that season, there's a fish that comes along, and that window is equally short, but they are able to meet each other within the same timing, and maybe you're only able to have that those two combinations for a matter of one week. So could you give us, I think it would be really helpful so we can understand this, um, give us a sample menu. <laughs> sure. So a simple kaiseki menu uh, would maybe consist of five courses. So you would start out with an opening dish that pairs things that are really um, common and things that are uncommon. What would be on our menu as a first first course was um, we did a dish with a minced up version of scallops and we paired it with a carrot cream. Vegetables are, are considered like, oh, it's they're abundant, so they're a little bit more common. And then to put something with scallops, which is harder to harvest and harder harder to get your hands on, that would be uncommon. This is a thinking person's um, 
<laughs> cuisine. Because it's not just about the food. It's, it, has a, it has a deeper purpose, as they say. Okay, so what would be a second course? And a second course would be the zensai, which is a seasonal appetizer. And one of the fun things about the zensai is a chef would sometimes choose an ingredient that is purposely out of season in order to show appreciation for what's to come or what has passed. So we're on to the third dish. What would the third course be? So the third course is typically a soup course, and it's usually light and simple. And the reason for the soup course is to sort of cleanse your palate from the previous course to prepare it for the next course, which is a sashimi course. What, why do you think that different cultures, Northern Europe, for example, is more of a melting pot cuisine? You know, a, a beef bourguignon, the individual flavors kind of get lost, uh, whereas in Japanese cooking, kaiseki cooking, you're honoring the ingredients and letting them speak for themselves. I, I think um, Japanese history and culture has always celebrated food because there was a time when Japan was very um, lacking in a lot of things. So from its humble beginnings, there's this, just the idea to have something meant that you really needed to be grateful for having it. Um, one of my favorite things about kaiseki or Japanese food is the dishware was something that they could have to show appreciation for an ingredient. That's why the very small dishes with a very small amount of food inside and that plating style came about because it was like, Mm. well, we don't have a lot of these wonderful ingredients, but whatever we have, let's show it gratitude and appreciation by putting it on this beautiful plate so that who's ever enjoying this dish will really, really take a moment and pause and think about it. Uh, there was a, a a little note. It says a Japanese writer has likened a sushi chef approach to that of an essayist and a kaiseki chef to a novelist. You want to explain what that means? I feel like um, with kaiseki, the story is a lot longer. So with sushi, it's one course that you sort of develop technique and do your best and learn how to present it and make it enjoyable. With kaiseki, it's an entirety, like every course affects the other. So sometimes when we're composing menus, uh, if we have a guest that comes in with a dietary restriction, we don't just eliminate one course or alter one course. We think about the course that goes before and after. So sometimes we end up developing a whole different menu altogether because of one thing that changes. That sounds like a complete nightmare to me. It it is. (laughs) That's why, you know, I've never considered going into the restaurant business, and that's just one more reason why I wouldn't want to do it. It is a nightmare. (laughs) If um, someone listening, you wanted to give them a little project, uh, a little homework, something that would help them understand Kaiseki better, is there one thing that, that might really describe by doing it the essence of this approach to food? I feel like the best dish that I can think of at this very moment is chicken noodle soup. Mm. If, if you can make a chicken noodle soup where all the ingredients are light enough and none of the vegetables are overly cooked and you don't have to do too much to the broth but just add a bit of salt. That's a really interesting answer, yeah. I mean, I people make chicken noodle soup all over the world and every culture does it very differently. But your point is... Every ingredient stands mm-hmm. on its own and, and has its own voice in the soup. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, this weekend I'm going to go make chicken noodle soup. 
Yay. Nikki and Carol, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. That was Nikki Nakayama and Carol Ida Nakayama of NNACA in Los Angeles. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be answering a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. First, I have a question for you, Sarah. So let's talk about fat. A friend of mine grew up in France, and every time he cooks, he brings over a tin of goose fat or something else, or duck fat. Do you stick to just butter and olive oil, or do you ever use those too? No, I've even started saving when I'm baking a beef roast or lamb. You know, I save the fat because there's always fat that accumulates, and I keep it in the freezer, and then I add it to recipes, to soups or stews. The trouble with animal fat is it doesn't have a high smoke point, but it's great for flavor, so yes, I do. I could tell. See, if you have French influence, yeah, go for the goose fat. Okay, time for calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Mohammed from uh, Canada. Hi, Mohammed. How can we help you? A quick question. So I just started cooking a couple of years ago, and, you know, I don't have too many pots in the kitchen. Uh, the more I research it, the more I find out, you know, don't use this type of pot. You know, don't use this type of pot. This one, if it cracks, you can get this type of poison or whatever. So do you guys have, like, a top five... You know, pots and pans to use in the kitchen, um, you know, copper, uh, aluminum, T-file, all these different types. Chris and I are not going to agree, so I'll go first, and then Chris will say something totally different. I like the pans that involve several metals, so the inside would be stainless steel, and then somewhere in the sandwich— so the inside. The outside inside? What I mean is what you actually cook on ah, is stainless okay. steel, because stainless steel does not react with food. So it's generally the coating on the inside of a pan. So that's a given. And then um, some other, you know, sandwich in there, either aluminum and or copper. Rarely is it copper because copper is so expensive, but aluminum is a very, very good conductor of heat. Second best after copper. And I like that combo because it doesn't react with food. It heats up really, really, really well. And it's well. called usually three-ply. Yeah, something yeah. like that. So that would be my choice, and there's many brands that make it. You know, the most famous is All Clad, and they have different levels of it. That would be the main pan. But then, of course, I like to have a um, Dutch oven, which is a combo of uh, enamel on cast iron because it holds the heat evenly, and so that's good for slow cooking. And I, Chris would laugh at me, but I think a, I still have a nonstick pan for frying an egg. And Chris wouldn't do that. Now Chris is going to tell you something totally different. No, I, I agree with the first two. I would use a carbon steel pan, get an 8 or 10-inch carbon steel. For the omelet or for the fried They cost 20 or 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. I find they're easier to season the cast iron and are more nonstick. I have one that is absolutely nonstick. I can fry an egg in it. I can scramble eggs in it. It's not a problem. And they're very inexpensive. And finally, I get a 12-inch cast iron skillet. It's good for frying. It's good for cornbread. It's good for lots of things. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, too. So a 12-inch cast iron skillet, an 8- or 10-inch uh-huh. carbon steel pan, I agree with a 6-quart Dutch oven, and then a 10- or 12-inch stainless steel multiply skillet. Yeah, I'd say 12-inch. You know, yeah, 12-inch. I, I, I just really feel like you need a big pan. You want a pan to pick up the skillet. It should feel heavy. Um, and the other thing you should look for is the handle should be comfortable. Yes. I won't mention any brands, but some brands are designed to make you cry when you pick up the pan. I don't know why, 
But uh, you want a comfortable handle. I think we pretty much agree. Yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. Th- wow. Those, What's wrong? Five for five. Yeah. There you go. I'm going to buy you carbon steel for Christmas. Oh, please do. Yeah. I'd love that. Is that it for your cookware? Or is, are we? Yeah. Yeah. That's everything. Okay. All right. There's so many options, you know. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Mohammed. Thank you. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kate from Des Moines, Iowa. How are you? I'm good. For the holidays, I usually bake a cake. I need to convert a cake recipe so that it's half of the size it would normally be. There's only really three of us. But I also, it's a spice cake, I wanted to use honey instead of sugar. And I'm not confident that I can do both at once. Well, in baking, it's a really good idea to change everything all at one time <laughs> to see how it turns out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let, let's just focus on the honey. Substituting honey for sugar is dicey. It's much sweeter. You'll need about half as much. Yeah, I, I've done it before. It's hard. I know I need to, you know, do a little more fat and a little yeah. less of the sweetener. It's the two things together that have me really kind of... And nervous. the liquid also. You're you going to have, have less it. liquid, so you might have to worry about that. Also, sugar attracts water, and honey works differently chemically in a batter, so that's a little dicey. We do have a recipe for pan de piece spice cake on our website at Milk Street, and we did use honey in that. So my suggestion okay. is don't listen to me, just... Go to the website. I mean, I, substituting honey for sugar is just one of those difficult, really difficult things. And you'd want to do a trial run or two before you had to do it for yeah, real. Yeah, I, I always start early. Yeah. This is for Christmas, actually. <laughs> so I'll have test runs. The other thing is, instead of making half a recipe, make the whole recipe and freeze the second half. I think it's the kind of bread that is very nice toasted. Rather than challenging yourself to doing both things at once... Uh, the other thing I haven't mentioned is uh, honey's acidic, so you may have to add mm-hmm. some baking soda to the recipe as well. Yeah. Just to be- because baking soda is alkaline and balances out the acidic honey. Yeah, and it's the holidays, so you start thinking, oh, all those warm spices and everything always goes so nice with the food. Uh, yeah. Well, you could do I, I did this once. I decided to have a dinner party. I was making six or seven things. Those were the days when I made too many things. And I tried, everything was the first time, and they were all difficult recipes. Uh, that is no, no, I, I just ridiculous. Did, I just wanted to know That's what would happen. A no-no. Well, I figured out what would happen. <laughs> yeah, which, which a mess. It, it was a mess. <laughs> so I got that out of my system. Now I, I cook two or three things and things I've cooked before. So. Right. I recommend that, yeah. too. Yeah. And, uh, and I always like to start a couple months ahead so I can do, like, test batches yes. of cupcakes. Yeah, so. there you go. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, Kate, thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions, so just give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marissa from Dallas, Texas. How can we help you? So I have a science question about sprouting wheat. If you, oh gosh, now I'm. <laughs> so I don't okay, just just so, take a breath. It's <laughs> we're we're going to need time to come up with an answer anyway. Yeah, so, you, you, so take it nice yeah, and slow. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Oh, Sarah, it's so great to hear your voice too. Okay, so I really just want to know if it matters in what like at what part of the process to. Um, Let's start at the beginning. So okay. you're trying to sprout your own wheat for some yeah, strange so, reason. Yes. Um, well, 
people climb Mount Everest, Chris, and they do it for the thrills, and this just happens to be. I'm, I'm, I, hey, I'm all for the thrills. If you're doing this for the thrills, <laughs> I just wanted yeah. to make sure that that's what we're talking about. Okay, so this is for fun. Yes. Okay. So it's for fun. I bake my own wheat bread. I've been doing it for years, um, and I've just you know read a lot of good things about the benefits of sprouted wheat. And so I have wheat berries that I've sprouted myself, and then once they're sprouted, you have to dry them. And so I was looking online and Chef Google says that, you know, there's really only one option and that's to use a dehydrator because it will dry the berries at a low temperature so the enzymes aren't destroyed. I don't have a dehydrator. I have an oven. And so I get, my question really is, does it really matter at what point in the process the enzymes are destroyed? Because I know as soon as I pop that bread in the oven, it's going to be super hot and kill the enzymes anyway. Well, I think, first of all, this is, I've never done this. So let's just, <laughs> so the, I, I'd be a terrible brain surgeon. I've never done this before, but just relax. I think you have to get it right because they start to ferment if you do it too long. And if they don't do it okay. enough, I mean, I think to work in a bread recipe, you need to have the sprouted wheat dried properly, right? I mean, that's a yeah, fair Yeah, otherwise comment. you won't be able to grind it properly. So too little, too much is going to be problematic. It's not a function so much of enzymes as I think it is texture and other things and gluten. Okay. The hydrators, by the way, I've used before, they're not expensive. Uh, you can get them at you know outdoor supplies like Cabela's and places like that, and people put venison okay. on it. It stacks, so you can have 10 layers on top of these things. And they also blow air around, so... That's what I would do um, because I think it's okay. a more surefire technique. But if you're just fooling around, that would be the best way to do it. But maybe start in the oven, low oven, give it a shot and make some bread and see what happens. I think, I think a low oven would be too hot. Well, maybe you do like proofing bread. You can turn the oven on, then turn it off. And just let them dry so in there. Oh, okay. Um, you know, Peter Reinhardt wrote a whole book about how to cook with sprouted wheat flour called okay. The Bread Revolution. Okay. This is the Everest of bread baking. Yes, this the is. Everest of baking. Good for you. Fabulous. Chris and Sarah, keep at it. Y'all are so fabulous. <laughs> I just, I love listening to your podcast. It's the best. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank Thanks. you. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with reporter Emily Thomas about how food preferences can actually destroy a relationship. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Are eating habits the new smoking? Can your significant other's food preferences actually become a non-starter when searching for marital bliss? Well, reporter Emily Thomas of The Food Chain profiles three couples for whom eating together is a problem, not a plus. Emily, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you very much. So you recently did a piece on uh, BBC World Service entitled How to Date a Vegan, and you interviewed three different couples, all of whom have food problems in their marriage. So 
Before we get to the couples, why is food, why does it seem to be that food is really a, uh, an explosion point for a relationship? That is, why is food so important if two people have very different views of what to eat? Well, I mean, it's really because our food choices reflect so much about us, or it feels like they do. They, you know, they show how we feel about our health, about the environment, about how we spend our money, about how we spend our time, about our own identity, about our culture. And so when we disagree on it, that feels really, really incredibly personal. And then because we have to eat three times a day or more, if food is a source of conflict, it's sort of a fire that's going to get ignited every time you eat. It's not something that just comes up occasionally. So, okay, let's start at the beginning. Um, Couple one, sounds like the dating game. Uh, Cheryl and Darmish. Cheryl's from Tennessee, fried chicken pot roast. Darmish is from Western India, and he's a vegetarian. So what's their story? Well, they met very young, and they fell very much in love. And at first, the cultural differences didn't seem to matter. But then when they got married, Cheryl stayed at home, And she'd cook for him and he'd add spices to what she'd cooked, which to her felt like a real sort of rejection of her hard work. I felt a little bit insulted. (laughs) Like, you know, you can understand cultural differences in your head, but in your heart, it's, it's hard to accept. I felt like, wow, he doesn't like my cooking. And then to kind of make matters worse, his mum would come over the whole time and she would prepare these amazing Indian meals. She brought food any time she could. And sometimes it was a bit of a tug of war with with mom and Cheryl because they'd both have food in front of me and watch which one I'm going to eat first. (laughs) It was very tense. She would, of course, fix 10 items to my one thing on the menu. So she always had plenty of things to pull from that she could lure him into eating. It, It was tough. And and then when they're family gatherings on her husband's side, the women would be in the kitchen cooking and she really wasn't invited because she didn't know how to cook that food. I mean, I think the men would be in one room, they'd be all together, they'd be talking, they'd be watching television. The women would be in the kitchen, they'd be talking in a language that Cheryl doesn't speak. So she didn't belong anywhere and she sort of felt, well, why should I have to change? I'm a, a meat and vegetables kind of girl, there's nothing wrong with that. So they were divorced in 2015, but then you noted they were remarried two years later. So, so what happened and, and what's going on now? Yeah, I think they made a choice together that their love for each other and the good stuff they had together was so much more important than what they called the small stuff. It was just something that for me, I just kind of let it go, sort of like a lot of things that we just decided to let go because, um, you know, we were starting over and we realized, don't sweat the small stuff. I think we have more of a, a blended menu now. Just happy to be in a kitchen together, cooking together, and having family time. Okay, couple number two behind the second door, uh, Krista and Toby. So Krista grew up in a very different culture and environment than Toby. I grew up in Hawaii with a really big immigrant family, um, so we'd have all these huge parties. And our family's around only like 40 to 50 people, but they'd have food set out for 100. When we go to restaurants with my family, we are a family of immediate family of four, but we'll order enough for maybe six to 10 people. So I definitely say my diet is varied, but it 
errs on the side of overeating just because my family believed in like nourishing oneself even to the point of excess. Toby, on the other hand, he grew up in the Netherlands. His family were very, very frugal. They cooked these very balanced meals. It was all, you know, one third potato, one third protein, one third vegetables. So when they met each other, at first it was all fun and games, going to restaurants, everything was okay. But very quickly, these differences started to cause problems. I also like buy a lot of things that I don't need food wise. So that's what bothered him. And so he would just be like, hey, you need to stop buying that much. I'm like, no, I'll eat it. And if I don't eat it, it's fine. And he's like, no, this is my money. It's not only the money for me, but I also just really hate like seeing food being wasted, right? Like, I guess I know roughly how to predict how much I'm going to eat and that will be enough, right? And I won't have anything left. And so did did they resolve? I mean, I, I can understand one person being extremely frugal and, and controlling. Is this an issue of self-control, really? Well, that's certainly not how Krista and Toby put it. And I, I think what's meant that they could stay together and make compromises is that there's no you're like this or, or you're like that. It's, oh, your family was like this, so that's why you behave in this way. I mean, they've managed to stay together by... By, by kind of coming up with some rules. So, for example, they still go to restaurants. She overorders, but she pays. On the other hand, she likes to eat in bed. She likes to sit in her bedroom eating a sandwich in the middle of the bed. And he doesn't like that because obviously it gets scraps and stuff in the bed. I am definitely not a fan of that, yeah, because <laughs> breadcrumbs will get in the bed and then you end up sleeping later and finding I use a this. box. Sure, but some will always spill. <laughs> I don't know if if my wife, if she showed up one night with a sandwich in the middle of the bed, I think, I don't know, I think I might be out the door. I mean, I it sounds like a small thing. I don't know why I react so, you know, strongly to that. In every relationship, everyone makes compromises. I guess that would just be no, that's a bridge too far. But, you know, this couple, they're, they're a young couple. They haven't been together so long. And I think, you know, that they just want to make it work. Okay, now we get to couple number three, Rebecca and Saj. He's not a vegan, she is. So what's, what's their story? Well, they met nine years ago, and at that point, Rebecca wasn't a vegan. And you do wonder, and we did ask them what would have happened if, if Rebecca had been. And, and they sort of admit that it, it may not have actually got off the ground, this relationship at all. I said that I would uh, I'd never go out with a vegetarian because... <laughs> I want to make sure that, you know, we could have good meaty meals together. Rebecca feels very, very strongly about her veganism. She became a vegan during their relationship a few years in, and her feelings about it have only grown, and she feels very, very strongly about it. When I see anyone eat meat, but in particular Sag, it's a feeling that's quite hard to describe to people who aren't vegan. It's not just nauseating and kind of a little bit gross, it's also something kind of profoundly hurtful. Um, So it's even worse watching someone that you love doing that. So they don't have meat in the house or or any any animal products in the house. Occasionally, Saj brings some chocolate home, but that's as far as it goes. He did tell me, though, that he eats meat behind Rebecca's back sometimes. (laughs) So he'll go there and he'll have some chicken teriyaki when he fancies it. And he claims he never lies to her about it, but he doesn't always mention it to her just depends on how I'm how brave I'm feeling so 
When I went to meet this couple, they were preparing their evening meal on a Friday night and it was vegan scampi and chips. And Saj said he was happy enough to eat it. Yeah, I really like scampi, but my heart doesn't go, oh my God, give me the real stuff. I just be like, right, let's try it. Bring it on. Because if I'm eating with Beck, I always think that it's like one of my rules that we should eat together and we should always have the same meal. Vegan scampi just is, I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Maybe this is a story of how people lie to each other to keep the peace, I guess, right? Isn't it? I mean... I think this is a love story, actually. I mean, Saj says that he can see that Rebecca cannot move towards his position. He can see how she feels and that she can't compromise. So he is going to compromise for her and he's just doing that because he loves her. Talking from the side that did the majority of the compromising or all of the compromising. Is it a compromise? Um, But like I know, you know, her line is drawn in the sand and she cannot come towards me. So if I love her, then it's up to me to make sure that I can move towards her and at least help her out. So why, why wouldn't I? Well, that's the test of love uh, and good for him. I mean, they told us about how when they went out for a meal recently, Rebecca had been saying to her mum, who's also vegan, oh, Saj is doing really well. He's hardly touching meat now. You know, I'm so happy. She'd been telling her mum all this. And then we went out for Chinese and he ordered pork dumplings and I just didn't make eye contact with my mum. So um, in these relationships that you found, these three couples, was there always one, one of the couple who really felt strongly the other person absolutely needed to change their ways in terms of what they eat? I think in all the couples there was one who was more willing to compromise and, and one who perhaps had a little bit more power. But the person who had more power tended to be the one sort of coming from the moral high ground. So in the vegan example, Rebecca had strong moral reasons. And I think with Krista and Toby as well, he's the one not wanting to spend money and wanting to eat more healthily. So his values are more kind of widely accepted in society and he probably had a bit more power when it came to, uh, when it came to them deciding as a couple how things were going to play out. Is there anything you found really surprising you didn't expect when you started this process? Well, I just loved making this program because, well, they were love stories, really. And I suppose I wasn't expecting that when we set out to find couples who had food conflict. Just hearing about what people are willing to put up with, because for me, like you, you know, eating a sandwich in bed would be a deal breaker. I just, it was just really nice just to see, just to see how much people would put up with when they love someone else, I guess. Emily, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you for having me on. That was Emily Thomas, host of The Food Chain on BBC World Service. Her piece is called How to Date a Vegan. It's time to head into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, chewy molasses spice cookies with brown butter icing. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Today we're doing something different. This is a recipe that was suggested by a caller, Jane. It was an old family recipe for molasses cookies. She had half a recipe, which wasn't that helpful. But it sounded like a kind of a different take on molasses cookies. So what is it that she made? 
Jane gave us a pretty detailed description of this cookie, and as you said, she had half the recipe, so we had a little bit to work off of. This type of molasses cookie is really big. It's about three inches in diameter, and it's more cakey than I would describe a typical sort of thin and chewy molasses cookie, kind of similar in texture to a black and white cookie, if you've ever had one of those, more like a cake than a cookie. And she gave us, as I said, half the recipe, but one of the ingredients she gave us was a quart I believe this is right, a quart of molasses, is that right? <laughs> that is yeah. correct. So naturally, in addition to kind of figuring out what this cookie was, we needed to scale the recipe down. So we worked a lot in the kitchen, tinkering with the proportions of the ingredients, including the molasses. Her recipe didn't have any flour or sugar on the ingredient list, so we had to kind of come to a conclusion as to what was missing and kind of put it together and recreate it. We went all the way back. This is sort of a vintage recipe from the late 19th century, and we kind of drew from those recipes and kind of recreated what we felt was what she was looking for. So we ended up with a chewy, it's chewy, right? It's, it's not crispy. It's a little bit chewy, but I would describe it mostly as cakey. It has an icing too, right? Right. So we couldn't stop with just recreating the basic cookie. We had to take it to another level. So we decided to modernize it a little bit. We added some ginger and cinnamon to it, a little bit of buttermilk because that balanced out some of that molasses. And then we top it with an icing. It's a brown butter icing. It has brown butter, powdered sugar, vanilla, mm. a little bit of buttermilk, really balances out the flavors in the cookie. wonder if Jane will recognize this recipe by the time we get <laughs> I think I think she'll recognize the cookie. I have to say this is my favorite cookie from this kitchen. I've eaten two dozen of these. Well, yeah. that's an endorsement for Jane. Uh, well, it's an endorsement for me, too, because I love molasses cookies. So a caller, Jane, uh, from a radio show, suggested a cookie. We did some research and came up with, I think, a world-class chewy molasses spice cookie with a brown butter icing. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for chewy molasses spice cookies with brown butter icing at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman expresses his odd and personal views regarding avocado toast. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, 
and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will try to solve a few more of your culinary mysteries. Hi, Sarah. Do you want to take the first call? Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Okay, this is Hank from Newtown Square. Hi, Hank. How can we help you today? Well, I've uh, been fiddling around with uh, what I can remember. My grandmother used to call kartoffelpuffa. That's Deitch. Okay. Uh, Potato pancakes. That's a new one. So what I do, basically, uh, I bake potatoes, scoop them out. Sometimes I uh, uh, cut up a little bit of the uh, skins and put them into a blender with the uh, potato meat. I always use uh, like a russet potato, baking potato. Cut up some onions, put one egg in. The potato sizes I use are the size of uh, my fist. Now understand I'm six feet four, 260. My hands are rather big. Okay. All right. So, uh, <laughs> I, then I um, fry up some bacon and then put in a teaspoon or two for every potato that I put into the blender. Okay. And then from there, I um, put it in a plastic box, put it in the container for uh, till the next morning, and I, and I fry up a little bit. I usually make five to ten pounds of this at one time. I'm not quite sure what your question is because it sounds like you're a happy guy. With this method. Well, what, is there something better I can do? What's wrong with the potatoes or what's right with the potatoes? I don't know. It's a, I like <laughs> it. Hey, if you like well, it, you're, you're if good. you like it, then what's the problem? There's no problem here. I'm asking for an improvement. Oh. 
Have you tried mixing in a little flour with this? No, never even salted it. Is there any leavener in this? No, none. I would try adding some flour and like half a teaspoon of baking powder, a teaspoon of baking powder for a typical serving. And if you're going to make three or four or five of these. Do you cook them in a lot of oil, a little bit of oil? How do you cook I'll, them? I'll use that spray oil. Right. I throw some onions in on top of that, then I put the uh, batter in and, and mix it up from there. What's the texture like once it's cooked? Well, a friend of mine says it's more like fried mashed potatoes. I would go flour more egg, a teaspoon of baking powder or more, two teaspoons, and see if you can get a cross between a regular pancake and, and what you have now. I think it might be a better texture. Sure. No, I think you're doing everything fine. I, I would... Well, except for one thing that I find completely baffling, oh. which is you say you throw this all in the blender? Yeah, just to get it all, all chopped up. Because my experience right. with putting potatoes in a food processor or blender right. is that you, is they turn into glue. So I'm a little baffled these come out so nice, but I sort of hate to mess with your tried-and-true happiness. If they're not tough, then you're doing just fine. I agree with Sarah. I get a big bowl, mash everything together with a potato masher, whisk it together, add flour, maybe a little milk, eggs, baking powder, try to get it And crust. salt. You haven't mentioned salt. salt. You know, what I use instead, believe it or not, is a, a Creole seasoning. Oh, that's fine, as long as it has salt in it. Fair enough, you... Uh... You've helped this bachelor out pretty good. we got to call you back sometime and find out how, how this worked out. Yeah. Would you please? You're more than welcome. I tell you what, why don't you come down sometime and I'll make some scrapple with it for you. <laughs> well, you certainly got enough leftovers if you got 10 pounds. Right. My Irish grandmother would be proud of me for making all those potatoes at once. She yes. would. Yes, I guess she would. We thank you for calling. Yes. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Take yeah. care. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, call us at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Catherine from Montrose, California. How are you? I'm great and excited to speak with you about my problem. (laughs) This is always the point in the call that I'm most nervous. Well, uh, I've been making this lemon curd recipe for a number of years, and I've only recently began canning it. And I split the batch in two, and uh, one batch went straight to the fridge, and the other batch went into the uh, jarring process. And that batch turned out to have a metallic flavor. I can't figure out why. The second batch was canned in the typical ball jars? Exactly, with the metal lid. lid. Mm-hmm. And the first batch that was put in the fridge, what, what were they put in? Same thing. Hmm. And by the way, I should note that I've since tried um, the recipe using a eggless version, and it didn't result in a metallic taste. Same setup, same jar, same lid. See, I was right to be nervous about this call. I knew. Back to your first statement, I knew something. I just had this little sixth sense I was in trouble here. Uh, So when you fill up the ball jars, is there much headroom between the lemon curd and the top? Yes, there is. I do know that if lemon curd comes in touch with anything metallic, it can pick up a metallic taste. The key piece of data was she left the egg yolks out of one recipe, and that did not taste tinny, right? Right. Why is it that without yolks, you don't get a metallic taste, which means it's not acid and metal reacting? It's something about the yolks, which obviously are not acid. 
so everything was the same between A, the control, <laughs> and yeah. B, you just took out the egg yolks or egg whole eggs? Right. Hmm. Hmm. I think, I think. Well, Sarah, I think you should answer this question. <laughs> Come on. I, I yield. I, we're stumped. Is there anything else that you didn't tell us? Now I'm going to blame you. Is there anything yeah, else you didn't tell us? Is there anything else you didn't mention? Well, so as you were speaking, I, I realized I left out salt. I don't know if that affects it. Uh, I don't, no, no, I don't think, I don't I don't think, think that's it. Mm-mm. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so one last question. When you say tinny flavor, this is definitely a metallic flavor or is it possibly some other kind of flavor? Oh, it's definitely metallic. I agree with Sarah. It's got to be some interaction with a metal top. Why the egg part of it does affect it and remove it, I don't know. Yeah. But it has to be that. Yeah. yeah. So that's our completely lame answer to an f- excellent question. You know what, Catherine, you might want to do is Google how to can lemon curd. Yeah. Also, you should check. I always refer people to Serious Eats, but there is a thread there about lemon desserts and metallic flavor, mm. which I'm going to go look up right after this call right? because <laughs> maybe they'll teach me something. And if you come up with a solution, would you please let us know? I will. All Thank right. you. Take care. Thank you. Take Thank care. care. This is Milk Street Radio. A few weeks ago, we had a debate about bay leaves with a caller. Sarah Moulton is in favor of the bay leaf. I'm a bay leaf skeptic. The call inspired this listener to call in with his very own tip. Hi, my name is Mike, and I have a tip. Uh, this is really directed at Chris for the most part, but uh, what I do, I, I live in California, so I'm in central California, close to Sacramento, and I have a, a nice big bay laurel tree, and what I do is I take the leaves off the tree and I dehydrate them in a dehydrator, and then I get them so that they're crispy, and then I take the middle stem out and I put them through a little you know, grinder, like a, a coffee grinder that I don't make any coffee in, and I make my own bay laurel powder, and it is incredible. It's a spectacular spice. Why it's not sold in stores, I don't know, but I love it. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor and sometimes troublemaker, Dan Pashman. So Dan, what's uh, what's up this week here at Milk Street? Well, Chris, I'm I'm a little peeved this week. I'm I'm, a, I'm I feel like I may be gearing up for a rant. You might want to fasten your seatbelt. That's my job. Ranting or fastening your seatbelt? Ranting. You can't have my job. No, I, <laughs> I I I don't know if you share my frustration here, Chris, but I, I have really had it with toast. <laughs> and I'm not talking about bread that you put in the toaster and put butter on. That's that's oh. wonderful. I love a nice piece of Good. toast. I'm talking about what is now being called toast, and it all started, as you know, with avocado toast. Oh, here we go. Yeah, in other words, weird stuff on toasted bread. Well, I don't know that I would even call it weird, but so here's the first problem. Uh, the first problem is that you, what, you put avocado on bread and suddenly it costs $12? That's ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous if people pay for it. I guess, but I mean, like, you know... I, I would feel bad making my money that way. True. Good point. You know, it almost feels like, well, I guess I shouldn't call it gouging because the people buying it don't need it. They're just like desperately in need of a trend, I suppose. But like, you know, they're ridiculously overpriced. On top of that, yeah, like a nice thin spread of avocado on toast can be delicious. You know, sir, maybe some tomato. But it's the mission creep. 
toast mission right. creep is what's happening here. <laughs> and these things I saw on the internet recently, sautéed mushroom and sun-dried tomato avocado toast. And this thing must be piled four inches high off the bread. What do you think is going to happen, Chris, when you take one bite into it? Well, no one, wait, no one picks up avocado toast. You use a knife and fork. Wow. Do you actually pick up your avocado toast? Really? I mean, you, you really? People eat it with a fork and knife? Yeah, because there's usually so much stuff on top of it, you can't pick it up. See, I've solved all your problems. Yeah. What's even the point of the toast then? Okay, well, there's. how about an open-faced hot turkey sandwich? What's the well, point of the bread? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, you brought up my, one of my other objections to the avocado toast issue, which is that these things aren't even new. It's just an open-faced sandwich. Right. It's an open-faced sandwich or a, a crostini or whatever you want to call it. Like, many cultures have some version of it. Like, this is not even new. And open-faced sandwiches weren't good when they were called open-faced sandwiches. Oh, man, you and I really—I mean, you, we usually agree, except about shower beers maybe. But, uh, I mean, the French—when the French eat a sandwich, they take the top piece of bread off, and it's open-faced, and they use a fork and knife. That's, that's how the French do it, right? But what's the point of the bread at, at that moment? The, the bread is the foundation for the, you know, what's the point of your foundation in your house to keep the rest of the house, you know, upright? So if you put avocado and tomatoes on a plate without the toast, it would just be a salad. I am on record as saying that an open-faced sandwich is not actually a sandwich, first of all. I believe that it should be called a bread sundae. Now, you, you, ha you have your, your bread base. Now, maybe if it's toasted and you keep it dry, it adds texture. But in a lot of city situations, the, the, the toast sits underneath there, it turns to mush. Now you're going to cut it up with a knife and fork. Like, you've eliminated all the advantages of a sandwich. Okay, okay, okay. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Are you one of those people who thinks marinara sauce should not be put on pasta because it's much better just eaten out of a bowl? I mean, it's like the pasta with the marinara sauce is like the bread with the open-faced sandwich. It's there for starchy contrast. No, I mean, I, I, I can accept that if the thing is done with respect for ratios yeah, exactly. and the texture of the toast is respected, yes. I can get on board with that. Okay. But I think often what happens is so much junk is getting slathered on top of this little piece of toast. You can't pick it up. You eat it with a knife and fork. The toast turns to mush. There's no structural integrity here. It just feels feels ill-conceived, and I just don't understand why it's not better than a sandwich. Here's your problem. Okay. You're not going to the right restaurants or cafes. Oh. Good avocado toast has a very crispy, like, sourdough bread, and it has a fairly thin schmear, right, of avocado. little something on top, some toasted sesame seeds, whatever, a uh, little cilantro or something, and that's it. So you have a nice combination of crunchy toast cool, creamy avocado and a topping, and that it's good. It's great. But, but you, you, you've been having third-rate avocado with us. You're going to the wrong places. I don't know, Chris. I, I think maybe you must have found one place you like that has it just right, and that your description does sound very good, I will grant you. But I, I think that, you know, if you get out there into the world of all the toasts that are being offered these days, you will find that many of them are just a complete and total mess. And they're trying to justify the price. So it's like when it was $8 for just right. a thin schmear of avocado and some seasonings, uh, okay, still feels like a lot, but okay. 
But now now they've figured they can go to double digits. Fair now point. they want to be able to get twelve, fourteen, sixteen dollars. Right. So they're putting more and more garbage on top to justify like now it's a meal. It's supposed to be like a giant feast on top of a single piece of flimsy bread. You know, and the whole thing is just like it's just a big lie. Can I ask you a question? Have you tried to resolve your <laughs> anger issues lately or something? I mean, have you had a vacation in the last couple months or what? I mean, you need a break. I could use a break, Chris. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Uh, yeah, I take your point. I take your point. I mean, 12 to 15 bucks for a salad on top of a piece of soggy bread is stupid. But, but avocado toast, properly realized, is actually a nice combination of crunchy and creamy. Well, I think I'm going to go put some cucumber slices over my eyes, and I'll spread some avocado on top of the cucumber yeah. slices. Yeah, lie down. Lie and then down. I will be avocado toast. Dan, go lie down. And I'll be relaxed. You'll be in good shape. Yeah. You, you need a long vacation, man. Thanks, Dan. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sparkful Food Podcast. Avocados Gone Wild. That should be the title of my next cookbook. They're used in puddings and Alfredo sauce and mayonnaise and baby food. They're fried and grilled. They appear in whipped cream and smoothies. Some chefs use them in chocolate frosting, creme brulee, cheesecake, even ice cream. And they are also ingredients in shampoos and facial skin therapy. All things considered, avocado toast is pretty tame by comparison. To be honest, I'd rather put avocados on toast than on my head. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our television show, also order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubop Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.